Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features a discussion between a medical oncologist and molecular pathologist who specialize in lung cancer. They will be discussing current best practices for patients with RET fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Clinical Impact, RET Altered or RET-Driven Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer and Thyroid Cancer, Expert Guidance for Improving Outcomes. During this podcast, Dr. Dara Eisner, the Director of Molecular Pathology at the University of Colorado, and Dr. Joshua Baumel from the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, discussed topics including optimal testing for RET fusions in patients with lung cancer, using the recently approved selective RET inhibitors to treat patients with RET fusion-positive non-small cell lung cancer, and the importance of interdisciplinary communication between medical oncologists and pathologists for providing the best possible care for patients with non-small cell lung cancer. For more information on Dr. Eisner and Dr. Baumel, along with a link to the complete program that will include expert commentaries, downloadable slide sets, and more, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. Hi, my name is Josh Baumel. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Um, I'm Dara Eisner. I am an associate professor of pathology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and I am a molecular pathologist and lung pathologist. Fantastic. And so we are here today to talk about RET fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer. This has really emerged as a critical target um, to identify for our patients with non-small cell lung cancer. So Dr. Eisner, can you walk me through um, how we identify a RET fusion? Sure. I think it's important to recognize that when you get a molecular testing report, you need to know what you're looking for. And fusions are different from a lot of other things that we look for, like an EGFR point mutation or an EGFR exon 19 deletion or a BRAF point mutation as examples. Like ALK and ROS1, what you're really looking for in this situation is a fusion event, which is where the RET gene partners with another gene to inappropriately drive the expression of its kinase domain. That leads to signaling that can then be targeted with therapy. When we look to test for these things, the most common methodology these days is really using a form of next-generation sequencing, NGS. I think it's important, though, to realize that NGS is not a test. It's just a platform. So just because you got a NGS test for your patient doesn't necessarily mean that RET was tested. This is where it becomes important to become really literate at reading those reports and understanding what was on the panel and how it was tested. RET is tested predominantly looking for either the DNA or the RNA inside the tumor cells. And you want to be able to read the report to know that RET was targeted in your NGS assay that was ordered. Other ways that people do test for RET occasionally include FISH, fluorescence in situ hybridization. That is something that uh, we do see occasionally, but generally we think that it works a little bit less well than next-generation sequencing for RET. 
And if you see a lab that has used immunohistochemistry to try to assess RET in lung cancer, you probably need to do an additional methodology if you haven't found a driver for that lung cancer yet. Thanks so much. And and you mentioned point mutations. Point mutations can also happen in RET, right? They sure can. RET mutations do occur, but it's really much less common in lung cancer. If your patient has non-small cell lung cancer, the RET event you're looking for is a fusion. Mutations tend to be something we see more of in medullary thyroid carcinoma, which we're not really talking about today. But that's why it's so important to learn how to read the report to understand the distinctions of what the test actually looked for. Some NGS tests look for fusions and some don't. So if you ordered a test that says it has RET, you don't only want to know that it had RET, you want to know that it looks for RET fusions. Let's say I just saw this report. What sort of questions would I ask to make sure that the test does target RET and who would I direct those questions to? Well, I think the first thing that you can do is learn how to read the fine print of the molecular report. And oftentimes this means knowing how to read the gene list that can be as part of that fine print. When you look at the gene list for next generation sequencing tests, usually they'll be split up into these are the tests, these are the genes that we look for mutations in, and these are the genes we look for fusions and rearrangements in. And you want to double check to make sure that RET rearrangement is listed on that rearrangement list of genes. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing to know is that, you know, the ability to detect fusions using DNA and RNA-based assay is sometimes a little bit less straightforward than um, than a point mutation. And so if you are doing a test that has a bunch of additional metrics in it, for example, if the test also covers things like tumor mutation burden or microsatellite instability, and you don't get a readout for those things, if the test comes back telling you that the the test was unable to produce a data value for those, that is sometimes an indication that the sample that was tested might not have had the best quality metrics associated with it. And that can sometimes impact fusion detection. And these DNA, my understanding is that these DNA-based next-generation sequencing assays, which I should mention is is the majority of the commercially available assays, are, are not quite as good at detecting these fusions. Is that right? In general, I would say that is right. Now, when it comes to RET fusion, we don't think there's a big difference between DNA and RNA-based fusion detection. But for some of the other targets that are important, like ROS1 and NTRAC, there can be a big difference between DNA-based testing and RNA-based testing. That's really interesting. So what is it about RET that makes it different? Well, this is where you get into some real technical mumbo jumbo that I personally love, but it can make a lot of people's eyes start to wilt. Um, You know, we can get into the details of DNA structure and introns and exons. And the the short version that I hope won't bore you too much to tears, Josh, is that uh, the introns for RET tend to behave really well and let us look for fusions in a DNA structure. Whereas the introns in some parts of ROS1 and some parts of some of the NTRAC genes don't behave as well and make it a lot harder to use DNA to sort of fish in those regions to look for uh, a fusion. I I could go many more deeper levels into the technical mumbo jumbo for you, but I I think that might be where some people's limits are right there. I appreciate it. And certainly putting it in the perspective of good behavior is is a limit that I am well aware of uh, with taking care of young children. So that is that is certainly something that I can understand. So thank you very much for that. 
Absolutely. Josh, let me ask you, you know, we talk about all these things and I mentioned in passing that they're targeted therapies, but you know, I, I, I know some about these targeted therapies, but I'm sure you know way more about them. Can you tell me a little bit about how those uh, targeted therapies evolved and what's going on with them now? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of our information about targeting RET has been derived from uh, the data from medullary thyroid cancer. You mentioned that. So medullary thyroid cancer commonly has this RET mutation. And so there were drugs developed to treat it, things like vandetinib, lenvatinib, cabozantinib. Um, And these drugs have some level of efficacy in that disease. When we tried to use them in lung cancer for RET fusion positive disease, we found two things which which really aren't great. So the first was they are enormously toxic. So giving these drugs is something I nearly always regret. Um, They are associated with rash, um, not appetite suppression, appetite absence is what my patients have described. Um, And people just feel really awful on them. And so it would be okay if they felt, or close to okay, if they felt that badly and the drugs worked. But it turns out they also don't work very well for this disease. And so we were seeing response rates of somewhere on the order of 20 to 30%. And with that toxicity profile, you know, we really were often better off giving these patients chemotherapy. More recently, there's been development of two drugs, uh, selpercatinib and pralcetinib. Um, and these drugs were an absolute game changer. Um, so selpercatinib has recently gained an FDA approval for the treatment of RET fusion positive uh, cancers. Um, and so if you look at the waterfall plot for selpercatinib, you see the response rate overall is 64%. But in patients who are treatment naive, it is 85%. That's remarkable. And we're also seeing CNS activity for sulpercatinib with a response rate in the brain of 82%. So this is a drug that is effective uh, and that gets into the brain. Beyond that, it also is well tolerated. Um, well, I'll come back to the specifics of the toxicity in a minute because pralcetinib also is remarkable in terms of its activity. Response rate 66% in treatment naive. Um, Again, a response rate seen in the brain, um, which is remarkable. If you look at the toxicity profile, the two big things we have to look out for for are high blood pressure, which is about 10 to 12% for grade three. So we can treat that. That's something that's not scary for us as oncologists. And ALT, AST increases, which can be seen again about 10% of the time, um, but that's about it. And usually the liver enzyme changes are asymptomatic. So this is a situation where we've gone from having enormously toxic, ineffective drugs to enormously effective and relatively well-tolerated drugs. Um, And this completely changes my approach. So a patient comes in, um, I want to know if they have a RET fusion at day one, because as we saw, those response rates are much better for patients who are getting it in the first line. And and put simply, we like to give our best treatment first. There is no treatment on earth that has a better response rate for ret posit- ret fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer than selpercatinib and pralcetinib at this time. And nobody would deny that's the best treatment. 
And so I am using this for every single one of my patients in the first line. And I think it's really important that we be testing for red. Well, that really does sound like a game changer. Um, it sounds like it's also changed how you go about testing. It has, you know, um, and every institution has its own workflow. I'm very lucky at Penn working closely with our pathology division. But how do you handle that sort of communication with the team at the University of Colorado um, to go about this molecular testing workflow to make sure that everyone has the appropriate testing done? Well, at the University of Colorado, we take a multi-pronged approach to testing in the setting of non-small cell lung cancer. We take into account a number of factors, including what tissue is available, how much of it is available, and importantly, we look at the patient's clinical history to decide whether we're going to try to do all of the testing out of the gate right at once or whether we're going to do it in more of a tiered cascade fashion. This has wound up working out really well for us. And incidentally, I'll mention that that we really started implementing this workflow as part of the COVID pandemic. And we've discovered that it really helps a lot of things um, in terms of thinking about how to make this happen quickly and effectively for our patients. The first thing we do is that for our patients with a light or never smoking history, right out of the gate, we start them off with a DNA and RNA-based uh, NGS assay. We do two separate assays on them simultaneously, looking for those point mutations and those fusions. This means that we aim to try to get both of those sets of results back within a week of getting the sample in our lab. When a patient has a higher smoking history, we're not looking to deny them that fusion testing, but we acknowledge that it's more likely that they'll have a mutation that's identified on that first round of testing that we do by DNA uh, mutation testing by NGS. And we will do that as quickly as we can. And if that is negative, we will then move the sample forward to that fusion testing. We found this to be really effective, and even in the case of that cascade approach where if a patient with a heavier smoking history is negative for a mutation on that mutation testing, we move it into that RNA fusion detection, and we can get that out within an, an additional half a week to week from those first results. It's been really quite effective, and we're really happy with this approach. We also do try to incorporate rapid methodologies wherever we can. And right now, there is no really good rapid methodology for RET, so we can try to use the information we get from rapid methodologies to help us accelerate RET testing where it's appropriate. So, for example, in patients with uh, low smoking history and non-small cell lung cancer, we can do a one-day turnaround EGFR test. And if that's negative, then we might know to really try to accelerate the rest of the testing. So we try really hard to take a, a, a tiered approach that takes into account the histology, the patient history, and then we also take a look at, you know, the tissue availability and what how much material we have and how much we need to conserve it to try to do a couple of really uh, wider scale NGS tests as opposed to those more focused tests. And you really touch on uh, some pretty critical points there. We've begun doing reflexive testing, quote unquote, reflex testing at Penn. And, you know, when we talk about things like that, we as oncologists like, well, yeah, reflex testing. But there's a lot of work that goes into it, a lot of people and time and effort that goes into thoughtful, reflexive testing um, that I think 
oncologists don't realize what's going on and how the sausage gets made, and so to speak. So I think it's really important that we talk with our pathologists to make sure that our workflows make sense, um, as well as that we're getting the results in a clinically rapid fashion. Um, how does uh, liquid biopsy get incorporated at the University of Colorado? Um, in many cases, liquid biopsy is handled concurrently with tissue testing. And in many cases, a patient who has a new diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer will have a, a scant tissue set, uh, sample available, but it takes time to get that sample moved to our facility and reviewed and started for molecular testing. And oftentimes, our clinical practice is to get the patient scheduled for a repeat biopsy. So that way, if that tissue turns out to be insufficient, we're not waiting just to start the scheduling process. While that scheduling process and that tissue retrieval process is underway, oftentimes our oncologists will do liquid biopsy testing. And in some cases, those results come back with useful data before that biopsy has even happened, in which case it can get canceled. I think the important thing to recognize here, though, about liquid biopsy is that you have to be a really educated user to know when it's useful and when it's not. We know pretty well at this point that the specificity of findings on liquid biopsy, i.e., when you get a positive result, how how much can you trust it? What's the probability of a false positive? That's really, you know, a very good metric. They tend to be highly specific tests. The sensitivity is where you get a little bit more tripped up. And if you don't pick out a driver a mutation, a true driver on uh, a liquid biopsy, you really have to think of that as uninformative. And this can come back to a number of technical issues, including how much circulating tumor DNA the tumor is shedding. And also it gets back to these pesky intron exon issues, particularly for fusions. And again, I think it's important to become an educated um, consumer of these test reports. If you get a liquid biopsy result back and it has just P53 mutations in it, for example, just because you found a mutation doesn't mean that the test necessarily picked up a driver mutation, or it doesn't mean that it reliably excluded one, which is the more important question. So I think it, it you know, incorporating liquid biopsy is, is sometimes really effective clinically, both in terms of turnaround time and its less invasive uh, uh, approach. But I think that it has to be modulated with understanding what the what the pitfalls of the testing are. Yeah, I completely agree. The way I frame it to my colleagues in uh, in clinic is that the a liquid biopsy is the opposite of a D-dimer, where you know, <laughs> a positive D-dimer is basically useless, but a negative D-dimer, that's helpful, and liquid biopsy is the precise opposite. If I have a negative liquid biopsy, I ignore that I've sent the test. Um, it's positive, you know, and really I find a driver, I can go with that. I can act on that decision. Um, but it's it's basically functioning as the opposite of a D-dimer in my clinic. The the other thing I'll I'll mention that you touched on briefly, Josh, is this piece of interdisciplinary communication. I don't think I can stress enough how important this is. As somebody who does both uh, lung pathology and molecular pathology, I've seen both sides of the coin on how difficult it can be to think about tissue triage, reflex testing, and all of the attendant things that come with it. And the more communication threads and processes you establish between your ordering to tissue acquisition to tissue processing to reporting to molecular process, the better your outcomes will be. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, communication is critical. And, you know, for those people who are working in clinical practice where they don't have as close of a connection with their molecular pathologist, there are multiple approaches that are that are reasonable. So many of the commercial assays that run NGS testing have um, people that you can reach out to to help understand the assay. In addition to that, the, you can always phone a friend. Um, many of us receive email contact and various forms of communication from doctors in the community saying, hey, I'm trying to advocate for my patient, trying to figure out the best way to, to move forward. I got this result. Help me out here. And I think that, you know, I'm very privileged to be focusing my career entirely on a limited focus of disease and so can be really aware of developments in that field. And, and so nearly all of us in academia are willing to share that information with our shared goal of getting the best care for all the patients out there. Because we recognize I can't see everyone. So I want all the patients to get the same high level of care that I strive to give to my patients at Penn. Um, and I think that speaking within your institution, outside your institution is really critical there. I agree completely. And and we see this pretty regularly at this point. We get uh, email queries that come in to our oncologist, to me, to some of our other pathologists saying, hey, what do I do with this result? How do I navigate this report? And, you know, I think it's it's really common at this point that we understand that these things are, are uh, complex and need, need some help sometimes. And many, if not all of us, are, are only too happy to provide that assistance. So, Josh, you, you touched before briefly on, on some of this question of managing uh, RET inhibition clinically. What are, what are you seeing in terms of duration of response and managing toxicities and, and how you go about taking care of patients on these therapies? Yeah, I think that this is really uh, a critical element. I mean, these drugs are new. So in terms of duration of response, we don't know a whole heck of a lot. Even with the selpercatinib data, you know, you go out to 18 months, we're talking about about four patients on the trial with pralcetinib, um, the data are even less mature. So, you know, this is something where we need to follow this for the future to see duration of response. In terms of toxicity, you know, monitoring their LFTs at baseline. And my usual approach is two weeks after starting a drug, and then I see them usually every six weeks, either I or the nurse practitioner with whom I collaborate um, will see them to make sure that they're doing okay, um, just to make sure labs are okay, blood pressure is monitored okay, and incorporate their primary care doctor who may already have them on antihypertensives. But from my view, in summary for this is that this absolutely changes my approach for patients with RET fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer. These are both highly active drugs, and I would consider um, these to be relatively equivalent without any sort of inter-trial comparison here. I think that both the drugs are highly active and that this is a great opportunity for our patients. It sure sounds like a game changer. And when I think back to the, the relatively recent history of targeted therapy, I think about sort of how ALK became a, a, a poster child for personalized medicine. But what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, we're continuing to slice the pie up. And even though the pie slices are getting smaller, the targeted therapies really are there. 
Yeah. And, you know, when you look at that pie and you see those tiny pieces of it, it's so critical to remember that the denominator of patients with lung cancer is so huge that even a tiny piece of the pie is a lot of people. And so testing is so critical um, so we can make sure we get each patient the best treatment. Well, Josh, thanks for going through all of that with me. You know, I, I, I'm on the technical side of a lot of these things, and it's always really nice to hear about how these therapies are working in real life. I'm super excited that this therapy is is now available, and I hope people have learned a little bit about how to test. I really am excited to hear about this therapy, and I thank you for your time, and I thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Dr. Eisner and Dr. Baumel. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Clinical Impact, RET-Altered or RET-Driven Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer and Thyroid Cancer, Expert Guidance for Improving Outcomes, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.